Hello and welcome to Ask Paul Kirtley episode 20. In this episode we're going to talk about ember extenders, natural soaps, combinations of wild edibles, are they always safe? We're going to talk about whether or not I still have my woodlaw knife and waterproofs if you're on a budget. So welcome, welcome. There's a whole host of things we're going to talk about today. I've got a bunch of great questions. Um, first off though, a couple of things. I've got a couple of announcements to make. This isn't a regular feature, but there's a couple of things I want to say. Um, first off, I had a message from the lovely wife of Gavin Henry. Gavin, I hope you're listening. Um, for your 20th anniversary, your lovely wife, Laura, has booked you a place on a two-day Bushcraft Essentials course with us at Frontier Bushcraft, which is fantastic. So she wanted me to let you know on Ask Paul Kirtley because she knows you're an avid listener and I understand that you uh, sometimes uh, uh, impose listening to Ask Paul Kirtley on her in the car as well. So thank you for your patience, Laura, uh, as well if you're listening. And it'll be great to see you in the woods later on in the year, Gavin. So hopefully that's made your day. Hopefully that's made you smile. I know you've had uh, a few difficulties recently, so hopefully that's brought a smile to your face. So thank you, Laura. And congratulations on your 20th anniversary as well for the uh, 1st of March. Well done, both of you. And the second announcement, this isn't going to turn into the request show, don't worry, but a couple of things. This one is important as well. This one is from Darren Osborne and Darren um, is, he got in touch about a sponsored walk that he's involved in. It's a 102 mile sponsored walk that is, um, organized by the lads that go under the name of Camp Shaky, a bushcraft group, and they are walking the Cotswold Way in the UK in the aid of the Royal British Legion, which supports um, our retired armed forces, of course. So that's a, a really good cause, well worth supporting. They're doing that on March the 16th, so I wanted to get this out um, on this episode as well, so that you have chance. If you want to support the lads doing this walk, um, and I'll put the link, um, both in the YouTube video notes as well as on the, the show notes on my blog so that if you want to go and donate even a small amount to those guys to support them, 102 mile walk is a long way by anybody's standards um, in, in support of a great cause. So hopefully you can do that. And thanks for getting in touch, uh, Darren. No problem at all doing that for you, mate. Good. Um, now, I haven't done one of these for, for a little while. Um, I've been sort of locked away in a room preparing my... Uh, tree and plant identification course for the 2016 intake and welcoming people on board to that. So if you've been missing these shows, I had intended to get one of these out last week. We had one bumper edition in the snow. Then we had the kind of special edition, which was the winter tips. I hope you saw that. Um, I didn't release that as a podcast. I may still release that as a cod, as a pod, as a podcast, as a podcast. Um, but the problem is context there because it was related to another video that somebody else had made and the two needed to be seen together. So if you missed that 21 winter wild camping 
tips video, go across to my blog or my YouTube channel and you will find it there. There's loads of good stuff in there. Apologies that's not being released as audio only, but you do kind of need to know the context. Um, I may think about a way of doing that. Okay, so I missed on doing one last week. Um, I've reopened my tree and plant course. Some of you said you wanted to do that. I know uh, as part of your New Year's resolutions for improving your bushcraft skills. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody's aware of it. There's no hard sell. Um, basically, it's a course that I open once a year. It's a 12-month course. I guide you through identification of trees and plants. It's, it's not suited to everyone. It's focused on northern temperate and boreal. Um, and for those of you that think, I'm never going to go to the boreal, don't let that put you off. Basically, if you like getting out um, in the northern hemisphere, outside of the tropics, this course is for you. Whether you're in Europe, wider Eurasia, or in North America, that's who this course is designed for. It's designed to show you trees and plants that are really important from a bushcraft and survival perspective. I'm not going to harp on about it now, but if you're interested in finding out more, um, I'll put a link. There'll be a link here somewhere. There may be a link here to, uh, to a card, if I can work out how to do cards on this again. Um, the new feature that YouTube has that works on mobile as well as on desktops. I'm moving away from just putting links because they don't work on mobile. Um, so some of my videos now, the links that are there, they don't work because they don't work on mobile devices. So I'll put, I'll put a card up, I'll put it in the show notes as well, there's a link through to that. Basically, there's no obligation, just stick your email address in there and I'll send you a couple of videos, a couple of presentations, which explain all about that course, what it is, what it isn't, who it's for, what the ethos behind the course is, how it works, what's in it, um, the structure of it, how much it costs, all of that stuff, it's in those presentations. So I won't harp on about it here. I may remind you in the next episode because it's only open a short window of time because then I want everyone to go through the course pretty much through at a pace, all about the same time so we can work through the year. And there are live sessions with me and that's an important point that we have six live sessions through the year and so we need everybody roughly at the same point um, so that we can make those live sessions really effective and getting people up the curve. Um, so if you'd like more information on my tree and plant identification masterclass, go to the link. Um, it's bit.ly forward slash ID masterclass. For those of you that are listening, that's bit.ly forward slash identification masterclass um, or ID masterclass. Both of those will take you there. Go there, put your email in and I'll send you the information. No obligation. It's just it's easier for me to do it that way than rabbit on about it now for a long time. So let's get back into the questions. And just as we do, there's a plane comes over. Um, it's a gorgeous day out in the woods today. I've had a, it's cold, but it's nice. Um, but there are a few planes going over today and they've chosen to come this way. It's typical. I decide to do an episode of this and we get some planes coming over. Um, I've got my directional mic on the camera, so hopefully we're not picking up too much noise. So if I'm talking about planes and you can't hear them, brilliant. It's not in my imagination, they really are there. But anyway, I've waffled on way long enough, okay? So, first question about cramp ball extenders, and this is from Twitter, and I am trying to get caught up with the Twitter questions. I know there's a few people waiting for you. There's a, I've, I've gone, my inbox has gone mental with Ask Paul Curtly questions. <laughs> it's ironic because originally this was to try and get 
answers to questions out more efficiently and out to more people now because the show is becoming more popular I'm getting more questions but it's brilliant there's a great community around this I really appreciate it a lot of the questions make me think about what I teach and why I teach it and why I advise certain things a lot of people come from different angles it's great it's, it does me a lot of good and it, I know it adds a lot of value to those of you that watch this show because you're constantly emailing me and telling me um, and I appreciate all of those thanks that you send in a few people even said is there a way to donate um, money for me making these shows this show's free you don't need to make uh, any donations or payment for these shows you never will have to um, but if you can do one thing for me it's share it with other people who might like it that's really valuable to me if you can put this on a bushcraft group on facebook or on a forum or tweet it out to people or share it on google plus or wherever you're active with people that might like this sort of thing that is very valuable to me because it grows my audience um, which has other benefits um, not least of which is that I get all of these great questions in which I can answer and then you get the benefit as well so it's a sort of mutually beneficial thing so anyway Twitter question from Quixotic Geek which is a great name and uh, his question is can cramp ball be used as an ember extender with the coal from a bow drill um, short answer is yes for those of you that don't know what a uh, cramp ball is, otherwise sometimes commonly known as King Alfred's cakes, um, it's a type of fungus which grows on dead or dying ash. Uh, common ash, um, Fraxinus excelsior, which grows in the UK and Europe. It's a black ball. It looks like a little ball of charcoal or expanded polystyrene growing out of the side of the trunk of the tree. Often if you get a dead ash fallen, this is a Norway spruce I'm sitting on here, but if you get a dead ash fallen, you'll get it um, growing out the side of it and you can break those off. And um, when they're dry, um, they have the consistency um, or at least the density of something like expanded polystyrene. So the sort of polystyrene packing that you get in lots of consumer goods and electronics, that sort of light density, that's the density that they have when they're dry. If they're a bit heavier than that, they've probably got moisture in them and it's worth drying them out. But don't do it inside on your radiator shelf because they give out black spores that look that's like soot. It just makes a real mess. So do it out in the shed or the garage or somewhere. Um, or at least put them on paper. Um, once they're dry, they're super lightweight. Um, sometimes you can get them straight off the tree dry. It depends on the conditions, how damp it's been, etc. etc. Um, and if you drop a spark onto one of those, they will, they will go nicely and you can take that to a, uh, a tinder bundle. This time of year, there's lots of dead dry bracken around me here, that works very well. But equally, if you've done friction fire lighting with the bow drill set, for example, and you've got a small ember, if you don't want to take that straight to your tinder bundle, if it's not, maybe you think it's not big enough, maybe it's very tenuous, then if you've got some King Alfred's cake, some cramp ball, um, if you introduce that ember to the cramp ball and blow very very gently of course because you could disrupt that pile of dust that little coal that you've got from your from your uh, friction fire lighting you can equally you can light that and then it will start to burn like a, a little piece of charcoal again blow on it and then you can take that it won't ever burst into flame um a la some of the uh, survival shows that you see you have to take it to um, some fibrous plant material or similar 
blow it into flame and then introduce that flaming bundle into a pile of sticks, etc., etc., as per your small stick fire lighting. So the answer is yes, it can be used for that. Um, the one caveat I would give is just make sure it's dry enough before you use it. Okay, good question. And I like questions about skills. I like question about skills and the use of natural materials. So fantastic, more of those, please. Um, next question is about natural soaps. And this is from Cyril Flanagan. And uh, good to hear from you, Cyril. Um, and he said he spotted an article on making, I'm gonna turn it this way, it's easy to read. These Twitter, these Twitter screenshots are a bit hard to read the other way. Um, I spotted an article on making a crude form of soap from natural ingredients found readily in the wild. Can you shed some light on what plants make good soap or what plants contain antibacterial properties from which you could cleanse your hands and maybe dispel some myths? Um, well, I don't know what myths you're referring to, so maybe I'll dispel them, maybe I won't, I don't know. Um, uh, the link is below, blah, blah, blah. okay, great. That was a link to an article about making soap from horse chestnut, otherwise known as conkers. Um, well, it produces conkers and you can make soap from conkers. Um, the leaves contain a natural soap and the natural soap that we're generally looking at in nature is a form of saponin. Um, there are various saponins, they're a type of chemical which you get in many different plants. In high concentrations, they can be toxic if you eat them or if livestock eat them. Um, but there are some plants that you may be familiar with as being edible that also contain a reasonable amount of saponins because it's not too much or you'd have to eat an absolute stack. You'd have to eat kilos and kilos before it became a problem. So for example, uh, common chickweed is a nice source of natural soap. You can crush the leaves up um, and you get a lather out of there. So that's one, uh, chickweed. Um, and I'll put these in the show notes. I'll put a list of plants in the show notes here. Another plane going over there. Um, back in Sussex, south of England, busy, um, unfortunately. But the woods here are fantastic and I enjoy wandering around here. Um, and I just happen to have the time to make an episode today. Natural soaps. Chickweed is a good one. Horse chestnut, if you can find it, although it's not normally naturalized anywhere outside of the um, Albanian, Northern Greece, Pindus Mountains um, peninsula there, um, that's where it, it's from. So you might find it planted in places, particularly in country parks, but it's not something you're gonna find further into, into the wilds. Um, what you will find a lot of though, is birch. Um, silver birch here, some downy birch as well. Um, silver birch and downy birch native to the UK. Silver birch native to a lot of um, Northern Europe and Scandinavia as well. And then when you jump across the Atlantic into North America, you've got paper birch and all your other birches there. And if you take the leaves, a good handful of leaves, just take a thin uh, branch, strip the leaves off very, very easily, very quickly get a, a handful, put some water in there, preferably warmer water, it doesn't have to be hot, but warmer water, um, squeeze them up, get a bit of a lather again. It's not gonna be like your, you know, your best soap that you're gonna have at home in terms of hand soaps. You're not gonna get loads and loads of foam, but you will get a lather and it will clean your hands. And the nice thing about birch is it leaves quite a nice smell and it leaves your hands feeling soft. Not softened, it doesn't make them, you know, more prone to damage. It just, it actually almost feels like they've been moisturized in a good way to, that will stop them cracking. You know, you, you use your hands a lot at this time of year. Um, and they start to crack when you're outdoors a lot. So um, the birch, birch works well for that. And then you've got things like even sweet chestnut, not at this time of year, clearly, and not nor for the birch, but more generally, um, sweet chestnut leaves, again, 
have some saponins in them and then you've got plants like soapwort and even red campion which is related to soapwort also a good source of soaps and the roots of those plants as well as the leaves um, so there are quite a lot of plants around but a lot of them require you to access the green vegetation um, or the nuts or fruits or roots and they aren't always um, available um, year round and so this time of year is probably the hardest time to find a ready source of natural soap um, I have to say. Um, of course you can use things like ash from the fire to clean your hands because it's, it's caustic, it's alkali, a bit of water that helps kill bacteria mixed with animal fat that's the basis of soap basically lye and, and animal fat mixed together that is a very very basic soap in and then you've also got things like pine tar you can mix in um, you know those traditional soaps that's what they're made from so th those those ingredients may well be um, available to you if you're in camp um, so that, that, that they're there um, other sources not so readily available at this time of year I'm just trying to think of anything else that you could readily access a lot of the evergreens are not ready sources of natural soap unfortunately it's it's more of the deciduous trees and some of the herbaceous plants um, but hopefully that gives you a, a few good ideas for what you can use when you're out and about from spring through to through to fall and you might have to rely on more traditional soap products or make your own over the winter months another plane rush hour but thanks for the question Cyril whether or not I dispelled any myths there I don't know and there, no doubt, as soon as I finish recording, I'll think of something else as well that can be used, but that's what I can think of off the top of my head. Okay, so this is a question, we've talked about birch already a little bit in terms of natural soaps. Um, here we have another question related to birch. This is one from Speak Piper. See if I can get it to play. Hello, Paul. It's Adrian Spring. Birch sap. I've seen it collected and I've collected it myself, but I'm wondering how come we never ever see any other tree used in the same way? Is there a reason for us? Can you help? Many thanks. Keep up the good work. So. Another good question there from, from Adrian Spring. Don't know if you caught his name there at the beginning. Um, making good use of the speak pipe facility on my blog. And the question was, and it's a very timely question because we are coming up to the time of year when we might think about tapping birch for sap. Why don't we see other trees used in the same way? Well, certainly birch has been popularized in recent years for the use for tapping for sap and you can make birch wine or you can drink it straight away um, you can reduce it down a bit to get a slightly sweeter syrup um, but there are other trees you can and are definitely used and the main ones are the maples so first off we should say that it's not just silver birch that can be tapped pretty much all of the birches can be sapped so whether you're not whether or not you're in um, Europe or across in North America you go to paper birch or the other birches that you've got there you can tap those as well in a similar fashion when the sap's rising you can tap them um, I'm not going to go into the details of how but do make sure you know how to do it before you do it because you can damage the tree, you can leave it prone to infection, etc., which isn't good. We don't want to be damaging nature unnecessarily. 
Um, but the maples are the other group of uh, trees that we can tap and of course maple syrup maybe the, maybe you didn't make the re, the the, uh, the connection there adrian but maple syrup um is the result of tapping maple trees and t reducing that down and turning it into a sugary syrup um, and there's one particular species of maple that's used for that in, in particular but there are other maples that can be tapped um, maples in North America but also if you're thinking about maples in Europe Norway maple to an extent possibly um, sycamore you can tap although personally I've never done it but I know that you can do it um, and th they're the ones really the birches and the maples which is great if you're in Canada because some of the woods there <laughs> there's lots and lots of birch and there's lots and lots of maples here not so many maples but certainly all the birches and if you do come across some Norway maple or sycamore give it a go let me know how you get on but certainly those those are the ones that are mainly used and I have heard of people tapping um, tapping walnuts as well which is surprising. Um, I can't remember where I read that or saw that. I've not, again, I've not done that one myself, um, but I've, I've heard about it done and I'll see if I can find you a link to more information. It just kind of popped up in my brain there. Cool, good question. And all questions about using nature so far today, which is fantastic. That's what bushcraft is really about. All right, but there's an inevitable kit question. This one's simple. This is from Joshua Pugh. And Josh's question, if I can get this to the right size, technology being what it is. Um, Josh's question is a question that others may want answering too. Do you still own your Woodlaw instructor knife? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do, Josh. And because I saw, I was pulling these off I don't always see these questions before I do these shows, but I have to manually pull these questions off Twitter and put them into my notes because I can't always get online onto Twitter and do the search when I'm in the woods because reception, phone reception is not good. So I saw this one last night and I dug it out of the cupboard. It hasn't been used for a while, but I know this will excite some people. So I will indulge those that will. So yes, I do still have my Woodlaw instructor's knife. Very proud to have earned that. Not many people have earned one of these um, from Mr. Mears and very much enjoyed my time working with him. I've talked about that before on this, on this show. Um, there you go. Those of you that uh, get excited about this, I apologize there's a little bit of corrosion on the brass bolts there because it hasn't been used for a long time. I don't get massively precious about knives their tools i do keep them in good nick um, generally when i'm using them i keep them sharp i keep them clean um, but that'll polish up nicely um, if i wanted it to and it's a very good solid tool um, but it is a tool um, i've got i've only got one bushcraft knife that i've never used and that's a uh, uh, the woodlaw 25th anniversary um, knife um, made by julius Peterson. Um, hand forged knife very very nice I've got number 17 my birthday 17th of January that's why I've got number 17 that's the only bushcraft related knife that I've never used the rest of them get used or have been used heavily and um, I've got a couple of woodlaw knives 
this one included. Um, I've got my PK1 knives now made by Raven Armory. And I've got a couple of other ones as well. One by Bushblade, Will Adams, very nice knives as well there. And I know there's a bunch of other people who make good knives out there as well. So I'm not singling people out, but I have a number of bushcraft knives, not many, um, not a massive collection and I use them heavily when I do use them. Um, I'm not precious about them. They're there to, if, if, it's, if it's a good quality tool, it's there to be used. Nothing against collecting, but it's been used a lot. Um, so hopefully that, that satisfies your desire to know more about that, Josh. Um, there was a question about wild edibles here from Isa. And Isa is a prolific question asker. And that's brilliant, Isa. You'll forgive me for going through them. I might have to have the Isa asks Paul Curley questions special soon because you've sent me so many questions. But I'm trying to I'm trying to get them through without sort of overly overly kind of emphasising your questions to give everybody else a chance as well. But um, here's a good question because it's relevant at this time of year as well because some of some of this you can do now. Um, and his question is, hi Paul, I know you can make pine or spruce needle tea, rosehip tea and add willow bark, birch leaves and even birch polypore to make hot drinks. But is there any harm in combining all these ingredients? Can having both willow bark and birch polypore, for example, have side effects? More generally, are there any wild edibles that are safe to eat on their own, but have side effects when consumed together? Thank you. Great question, Isa. Really good question. Um, to, my to my knowledge, no, there aren't any combinations of wild foods, so like raw wild foods together that are going to cause you problems. Now, when we're talking about fungi, you should always cook fungi. You shouldn't eat them raw because there are some that are raw, uh, that are poisonous raw. Um, and also, you know, things that you're picking up off the ground that's grown up through the ground, you should be cooking. So as a general rule, always cook them. Even something like birch polypore, if you're going to make birch polypore tea, which has various medicinal benefits, um, it doesn't taste great on its own. So it, was, it is worth adding some other things if you can. Um, now, if you've got the ability to add some salt, um, that will improve it as a broth. Um, but on its own, it's, it's not great. And you should only be using the young birch polypores, not the old um, fully grown ones. Um, but that's a matter of taste. It's not a matter of safety. Now, clearly, if you're making a tea or a broth out of any fungi, you need to make sure that they're safe first in the sense that you've positively identified them. Um, but beyond that, combining them with other things, um, not really. The thing you want to be mindful of, though, is that it depends whether or not you consider this <laughs> a wild food or not, but alcohol is an issue with some fungi um, because some of the toxins in some fungi are alcohol soluble rather than water soluble. So you can eat them perfectly safely while um, not consuming alcohol. But as soon as you consume alcohol, you're you, mo you motivate those poisons, there are, they can get into your system and um, you, you suffer the consequences, some of which can be quite uh, extreme. And in fact, um, some uh, fungi toxins are used to get people 
uh, to cure people or help cure people of alcoholism because the consequences in terms of vomiting etc are so unpleasant if you consume alcohol and it's not just contemporaneous um, consumption either it can be as, as long as the two things are in your system you know so you've eaten the mushrooms one night and you have alcohol for breakfast or vice versa they can they can make you ill still so one species in particular which is quite a common and popular edible species is shaggy ink cap um, and that's one that you need to be mindful of those caprinus um, species in that genus are ones that you need to be careful of in particular satyrellas are some other ones that you need to be mindful of as well um, I believe are also alcohol soluble or they some of them the edible edibility is still listed as unknown anyway but the ones that are generally considered edible that you want to be mindful of if you're consuming them with alcohol which may not be an issue for you I'm not saying it is but just as a general point are those that are in that genus with the shaggy ink caps um, the caprinus and I'll put a link to maybe the wikipedia page of those species so you can see what they are in the show notes okay um, in terms of mixing willow bark um, with other spe other things like rose hips no issue there the only other thing to be mindful of with um, willow is that willow contains salicylic acid which is a natural form of aspirin and some people are allergic to aspirin now i don't know of any recorded cases of people having allergic reactions to willow because they're allergic to um, pharmaceutical grade aspirin that's produced and made into tablets um, but um, I guess the potential is there theoretically although I, as I say I don't know of any um, recorded instances so if anybody wants to send me um, not just hearsay or my brother's mate's friend told them in the pub that this you know, somebody can send me a, a medical journal article or a reference and something like that regarding people with um, allergies to aspirin also having severe allergic reactions to willow bark then i'd be interested to to see that and share it around as well because that's something that that people should know about if it's if it's an issue but other than that i can't think of any any problems with all of those things that you've mentioned there isa or or in general good question um there was one other question i noticed for this episode and this is about waterproof jackets and even though um i do try and avoid too many kit questions i know people want to know about kit and i appreciate the fact that people trust my opinion and my experience and so i'm happy to share it that's part of the value that i bring to people but this is not going to turn into the ask paul curtly about kit show i can tell you that um, but here's a question from john robbins and john um john mentioned me in his podcast um i'll put a link to it in the show notes again and some of you may know john he is a stand-up comedian and if you want to check him out on Twitter or say hello to him on Twitter, you can find him at Nomadic Reverie. And again, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, Nomadic Reverie. And um, John's question is, um, and he mentioned me on his podcast the other week, actually, um, on his show about drinking beer and watching my shows, which is great. Dark Star Brewery, which is very good beer from not far from here, actually, in Sussex. So they're in West Sussex, but they're not too far. Anyway, I digress. His question is, um, hi, Paul, love your work and sensible approach. I was active in the Scouts and I'm looking to get back into bushcraft in my 30s. I've booked onto the <laughs> with with 
I'm not going to mention them, and obviously have a big um, and potentially expensive kit list to source. Um, I know kit is not your favourite topic, but I had a question about your approach to the outer layer. It seems to me that there's an obsession with keeping bone dry and warm. Some of my favourite memories of scouting were warming up and drying off. However, I don't know whether to buy a bushcraft jacket that is waterproof and sturdy, but potentially hot, or use a light waterproof for when it chucks it down on top of my shirt or fleece. I plan to mainly be out April through September in the UK and up in Scotland. Um, Scotland is part of the UK, John. Um, <laughs> still. <laughs> and... <laughs> and think when it really hammers down you tend to seek shelter anyway i don't want to spend more than 100 pounds on something would something like this suffice and he's put a link through to the jack pike hunter's jacket would love to know your thoughts cheers john well um first off john um kind of have to say that i'm hurt and offended that you chose to, you love my shows you watch them all and yet you've gone you've chosen to go and do a course with somebody else maybe i don't put myself out enough to say that i run bushcraft courses i don't just sit here in the woods like a little gnome on a tree stump talking to a camera answering people's questions i do run bushcraft courses in the uk um go to frontierbushcraft.com if anybody's watching this frontierbushcraft.com is my bushcraft school all the courses on there and actually all the courses bar one because it's a, a family celebration this year one weekend all the courses this year um whether it's elementaries one day courses two day courses six day elementaries woodcrafters navigation courses or if i'm jointly hosting them with ray goodwin i'm running all of those courses yeah i will be there on every single course so if you want to come and learn from me directly you don't have to just watch my videos you can come john you can come and, and do courses with me in the UK. And because uh, otherwise I might have to sell my jacket to you because I can't afford to put you know, bread on the table just to guilt you, guilt you into it the next time. Um, <laughs> but yes, just the thing is, people don't always realize that I do run courses. I'm not just somebody who puts stuff on YouTube. Um, I put stuff on YouTube because I know these things because I've spent my lifetime doing things outdoors and I've taught bushcraft for over a decade full-time professionally but anyway next time John I'll let you off you can tell me somebody bought you it as a present it's fine um question okay 100 pounds isn't a lot of money for a waterproof these days um doesn't mean to say you can't get a waterproof for 100 pounds but it it limits your scope quite considerably um I would say waterproof jacket is one of the most important outdoor pieces of clothing particularly in the uk because it's um often wet it's often windy and it's often not that warm and wet wind and cold are it's that triangle um that threesome if you like that come together to give you the best conditions for inducing hypothermia in people so staying dry is one of the most important things you can do so yes there is a bit of an obsession with staying dry because getting wet in the outdoors in general is not great particularly this time of year um, if i got wet today i'd be in trouble i need to do something about it getting wet on a june warm june day is not so much of an issue getting wet on a two or three degrees c um, january february march day is is not great um, depending on where you're going in scotland you may be up in the hills and that you mentioned getting too hot that can be an issue with some 
jackets, um, you need good ventilation. Like this jacket I'm wearing at the moment, which is a Noriner jacket, has arm ventilation as well. Um, some jackets have got side ventilation, some smocks have got side ventilation. Some sort of vents are good. I find some of the larger smocks that people tend to wear for bushcraft activities like the Swazi tar, I have a Swazi tar, they're great for standing around in downpours, but they do get hot when you start moving around. Um, so I prefer something like I'm wearing today when I'm moving around because I can ventilate it much more uh, readily. And in the mountains, I'll wear, unless I'm in the Norwegian mountains, this is a Norwegian jacket, um, unless I'm in the Norwegian mountains in winter, I'll wear something lighter weight in the UK. Now the issue with wearing lightweight jackets in the woods in the UK is that if you're, you know, brushing past lots of twigs and branches and carrying firewood back and brushing through, um, you're going to potentially damage your jacket and that's an issue. So you need that mixture between something that's sturdy and something that is not too heavy. Now, if you want to keep your budget relatively low, you might want to look at, and it's mainly for use in the woods, you might want to look at getting a ventile smock, um, which will go over something like a wool shirt or a fleece shirt. Um, on its own, it's not going to keep, a single layer of ventile in a downpour will not keep you bone dry. Whatever anybody tells you, it won't. I know because I've worn them extensively. I've worn them in the Cairngorms in April. I've worn them in the woods throughout the year. I've worn them um, overseas. I have a double layer ventile winter smock that I wear in the, in the far north in the winter, which is excellent, but I've got a lighter weight single layer ventile smock that I wear in the UK sometimes. Um, it ventilates much better than Gore-Tex. It doesn't get too hot, but it won't keep your bone dry in an absolute downpour. Um, it's better near fires than some of the plastic jackets, particularly the thin plastic jackets. So maybe if you're on a limited budget and you want something that's not too hot, that's relatively lightweight, that's sturdy, have a look at a ventile smock. A snow sled um, make a good one. Their classic smock is good. If you do go for the classic smock, pay the extra 10 or 15 quid, whatever it is, to have Velcro cuffs, because the elasticated cuffs, my original one had elasticated cuffs, I didn't like that very much. I prefer the, uh, the, the Velcro cuffs, but have a look, Snow Sled, um, UK-based company, um, have a look at their classic smock. They, they last a long, long time as well, and they'll be durable in the woods. They'll keep you warm and dry as long as you've got a Swan Dry or a Swazi um, fleece or something similar underneath, and, um, or a Buffalo. Buffaloes work well underneath them because Buffaloes aren't great near fires, but they're warm with a with ventile over the top. That's a fantastic combination. Also ventile over the top of, um, over the top of, uh, Paramo. Sorry, I was thinking Nickwax, Nickwax, Nickwax. Paramo jacket, because the two companies are, are the same company. Um, Paramo jackets, again, if you've got a Paramo smock, with a ventile smock over the top, really nice warm dry combination for the woods and you're not going to damage that Paramo um, outer with sharp sticks and fires and whatnot. So I think that's a really good combo if you want to go for that um, and you want to avoid spending a lot of money on a very sturdy Gore-Tex based jacket because these Norina Recon jackets, um, the, the, the current model of these and the Swazi Tar jackets, which are popular jackets, um, are very expensive. And so to spend a lot less money, I would rather than looking at a cheap sort of breathable plastic jacket, I would say go for Ventile and wear a good underlayer underneath it, which gives you a very flexible solution as well.
So hopefully that helps John and hopefully that helps you save some money so that next time you can come and do a course with me. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for sending in the questions. Don't forget to check out my Treat and Plant ID Masterclass. Um, the link is here or here somewhere or all of those places on YouTube and in the show notes. Go there, stick your email in and I will send you some more info. And then those two videos that I'll send you are educational in themselves. You can get a lot of benefit from just watching those. And if you want to join the course, the information on how to do so is also towards the end of that second video. So check those out and hopefully I will see some of you on that course as well if you're not already on it. Take care and I will see you on episode 21 before too long. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.